1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Indie Football Podcast. I'm Ben Burrows. Luke Brown is selfishly off this week, so I've been parachuted into the host chair at the last minute. Joining me today are Chief Football Writer Miguel Delaney, Features right. Writer Petushin Ihanta Raja and Sports Reporter Jack Rathborn. <laughs> this week, it's all about the battle at the bottom. With the top of the table a foregone conclusion, the fight to avoid relegation could very well be the most interesting thing we have to look forward to as the season reaches its climax. Uh, any one of eight or even nine teams could be dragged into it with 10 games to go. Let's start with Aston Villa, who are currently 19th in the table. Miggs, you were at Wembley to watch them eventually lose the Carabao Cup final on Sunday. What did you make of them?
2: Uh, very impressed, especially because uh, for, for about 30 minutes, I was fully expecting that game to just be like the FA Cup final last year. Had all that set up ready to write. And uh, Villa made a proper game of it. And really, uh, like to reduce City to... Hacking the ball away in the last few minutes, you know, a wonder save from the peerless Claudio Bravo. Um, it was very impressive, and, and um, Smith kind of corralled them together afterwards. Um, you know, and was was obviously it, it, the, me- the message was very much you've got to use this now for the rest of the season. And I suppose that is certainly the hope that, in that, in that sense, the defeat well, I mean, It could be actually the the opposite of Birmingham in 2011. Their their neighbours who won the League Cup and almost kind of went into decline and went down. Maybe for 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 Villa losing it could be galvanising. Fish, how easy do you think that would be to do? Um, I suppose the
3: way that the last part, the well, I suppose for the last three quarters of that game panned out bodes quite well for Villa. The way they were able to stick together and actually, as Miguel said, made it made a game of it. And I think that might have quite galvanising property going forward because the the beauty of that final was that they had to kind of leave everything out there it, within those 90 minutes they weren't kind of worried about you know conceding a third because obviously in that kind of that kind of match there's you <laughs> the carrot is right at the end of the game rather than you know a month two months further down the line and i wonder if they saw in each other a fight that they weren't entirely sure was there because it was only the week before where you wondered if they had an eye on this final because they were you know terrible out on the field and they, it didn't seem like they had any kind of Proper cohesion—not that you, uh, well, certainly the cohesion that you'd want from a team battling relegation. Whereas I thought, you know, in the (laughs) the way they were throwing stuff at City at the end of that game, I thought maybe actually there is something substantial, something worthwhile, and like a a strong core there that can
1: see them through the next ten games. I think much of the season has been about Jack Grealish's Aston Villa, really, and he's sort of carried their hopes to quite a large amount of it. Jack, what do you think? Can he do it all? It looked as though it maybe was, maybe that's something to do with Pep Guardiola's sort of system perhaps, but it did look as though it was a bit too much for him on Sunday.
4: Yeah, I think he will need help for Villa to stay up and I think there is now a semblance of a plan away from Grudish playing like hero ball, essentially. I think he's he's definitely going to be feeling the, uh, the workload of a, an entire season of, of trying to... Keep Villa up on his own, and I think the signing of Samata gives them a bit of a Plan B. I think El Ghazi and El Mahboudi can put balls into the box. Now well, Greedish can too, and you've got a, an aerial threat there. I think Grealish while he can make the difference when games are tight, that game on Sunday shows that if Villa can keep it tight against, against teams who probably will be favourites to beat them in the in in the running, as we'll talk about in the, the next uh, few minutes, I think. You want Grealish to be there to make the difference and you're going to need to keep games tight. And I think in that second half especially, they show that they can go toe-to-toe whilst also keeping it reasonably tight at the back while City did have chances. I think they'll be very happy the way they they set up after going behind. Uh, You mentioned Samarta. Um, Vish, you've written
1: this week about the impact of strikers joining clubs mid-season. Do you want to first sort of explain that piece and also what you found out talking to the likes of Kevin Campbell and John Stead and also whether Samata, who scored on Sunday, really good goal, fits, do you think, whether he fits the profile of a man to save Villa?
3: Yeah, well, I suppose the, the piece itself was, I suppose, born out of a chat that you and I had about potentially what teams would need in the January transfer window and invariably they're always going to go for either the top or bottom, they're either going to go towards scoring goals or preventing goals and... When strikers come in, regardless of when they come in, they have that expectation on them to, to hit the ground running. And especially in January, where you've got to come into a system that's totally alien to you, maybe even step up a level and, and just carry a team forward and, and be that kind of guiding light for them. Um, and I thought what was interesting with Kevin Campbell and John Stead, who both came in, um, well, came in kind of mid season, uh, Campbell coming in in March, and Stead coming in at the end of uh, January, what they did was they kept their teams up with goals, but they did it in two very different ways. Now, Kevin Campbell, obviously, when he came from Trabs on to Goodison Park in 1999, came with a bit of credibility about him. He was a recognised striker who'd had success at the pre- at Premier well, Premiership level, as it was at the time, and he was only 29 as well, whereas Stead came in and was a bit of a punt, really, a little bit like how Jared Bowen is now, even though I suppose a few more teams were looking out for Bowen. And Bowen's jump-up was just from the Championship to... Premier League rather than the third division up to the top tier and I thought it was interesting that while Campbell had the kind of arrogance about him that carried that Everton team forward um, Stead was a little bit different I suppose they both kind of had blinders on in their own way Campbell not really paying attention to the fact that Everton were where they were and Stead coming in and thinking well this is just brilliant I don't really care about the politics of Suness, York and Cole I'm going to just concentrate on, on doing the best that I can and they both had you know similar effect um, and i saw this, the thing with Samarta and maybe even that the goal will be a springboard for him to score in a Shopee's final might just drive him forward and yeah, I suppose it, it could work out for them, but it, I think the other thing as well is that it can't you can't just rely on Samata being a guy who's just gonna go and score goals. They, they still need to replicate that display in that second half, for example, to go forward. It. It's not just gonna be a case of well he he can get us ten goals between now and now and the end of the season.
1: They've had a lot of injuries as like lots of teams at this time of year. Do their run in, as we'll go through various contenders here, is one of the worst. They've got Leicester, Chelsea, Wolves, Liverpool, United, and Arsenal remaining over the last ten games. Migs, do you think Dean Smith's got enough to sort of raise them and get enough out of that? They are obviously nineteenth now.
2: Uh, I think they do. I have to say, Um, because I think in all those games they're always doing a fighting chance. And when it gets to the end of the season, squads stretched, maybe in the situation where teams don't have too much to play for, even there's a drop off from sides like Sheffield United, say then that's when opportunities open up. So I wouldn't... I think it's actually a weird thing. I I, I often think people put too much stock in the fixture list towards the end of the season and the run-in because of how variable the situation can be. Like, say, a fixture against an Arsenal who can't get Champions League is very different to a fixture against Arsenal early in the season, say. Um...
1: Well, they also have much more to play for. So if you look at that this, that famous Sunderland run, the Great yeah. Escape, when they went to Stamford Bridge and won. Like, that, no one would have penciled that yeah, in three exactly. months before that. But yeah. at that, that point in time, they were the form team.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's always a bit of chaos to to, uh, to run in as well. So from, from that, I wouldn't put too much stock in that. I think I put much more stock in the fact that they're a team who, well, bar their, own, their earlier game against City, the 6-1 when they get hammered. They tend to stay in these matches, Villa. And I think that will give them a fighting chance, maybe more than some other teams down there.
1: It was a great performance from Villa on Sunday, but there's no debating where the performance of the weekend came. And that was at Vicarage Road, where Watford stunned the now suddenly rubbish champions of late <laughs> Liverpool. A uh, lot's <laughs> been talked about Liverpool in the aftermath of that result on Saturday night. But Vish, it was an outstanding performance from Watford.
3: Yeah, yeah, it really was. Um, I feel like I've been made a mug of by many of the teams down there because I watched Watford at the start of the season against Chelsea and they were absolute trash, like properly garbage. And the only reason they ended up, I think it was 2-1 in the end, and the only reason they got that one was because Chelsea are Chelsea and you know yeah. they'll concede goals as easily as they score them. And to be fair, you know, they, I suppose they've they've burned two managers already this season and the fact that they've been able to, I suppose, just to pick up and, and even pull out that kind of performance out of nowhere, really. It was interesting that Dini was kind of at the forefront of everything good they did. It, it seemed a, not so much of a throwback, but it's a performance that we haven't really seen that much from Dini where he just picked up Loveland and shook mm. him about for 90 minutes and...
2: Yeah, they just couldn't couldn't hack it really. Well, also, the fact that Liverpool were ultimately undone by something as simple as, um, you know, v- w- Watford's most physically abrasive player picking on Liverpool's most vulnerable defender. Yeah, and, and yeah. just kind of honing in on that for an entire ninety minutes.
3: Well, yeah, it, w- it was really basic in a way, yeah. wasn't it? You, I suppose a lot of teams would look at Liverpool and think, right, how do we how do we shut him down? How do we shut him down? How do we how do we shut him down? And Watford just flipped the script a bit and thought, well, let's just get our biggest bloke to hit their weakest bloke.
2: Yeah yeah um, actually just on a brief tangent, um, because it's something that could have been said about Deany, but is Andy Robertson the mouthiest man in football? He's
3: he's he's the most Scottish footballer around since Colin Henry, probably. <laughs> like, I went, as someone who spent five years in Edinburgh, you'd come across an Andy Robertson in Fiverside mm. every week. He's just gobby, always at it, always at the referee and just a little bit too good as well. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, he's he's got a hell of a mouth on him. He was great against Snodgrass, actually, that West Ham Mm. game because obviously they're good mates and going back and forth and he was giving him a hell of a lot. He's
1: certainly a a bad loser, which I suppose when you only lose one game in about 50, then you're going to be quite bad. But Yeah, um, yeah, going back to Watford, um, they do, Jack, they sort of appear to have a squad that's, quote, too good to go down. Do you think that's still a thing in the sort of modern Premier League?
4: Well, I think it has flipped this season because essentially the the immediate reaction from everybody this season was the quality is terrible at the top of the league but as a result of that you look down the table and every team seems to have one or two players who are at least capable of playing for another side on the continent who can play in Europa League so I think in that sense the days are gone of a a team that's too good to go down I think remember when we we spoke about teams in the past like West Ham who were too good to go down and and ended up going down so I think in that sense, you, you look at Norwich at the bottom of the table and they've got several really good good players who, who could step it up a level and who will be plucked away, I think we might mention towards the end of the show. There's going to be an awful lot of talent who will be available come the summer as a player in a relegated side. It's an interesting subject,
1: isn't it? We'll, we'll move on to it. But yeah, there's, sort of, there's lots of players down there who you'd think it's almost like fantasy football, but sort of the likes of, say, Felipe Anderson or Ryan mm-hmm. Fraser or Callum Wilson or Jack Grealish is obviously the headline name, Declan Rice. So sort of, well, yeah, like I said, we'll go on to it, but potentially there's a lot of very good sort of headline name brand players that are going to be available for fees that lots of teams can get them for.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm healthier for the league that. Well, I think it's maybe a reflection of as well of how all along, the Champions League is the top level for a lot of players. After that, after they can't get into the Champions League, get into the Premier League, which is why you see this, I think, and why... Uh, and it's something that's really been a trend, I suppose, since the massive upshoot in broadcasting money around like, around 2015. Um, but
1: It's sort of that shop window thing, right? So yeah, It's exactly, like you yeah. had,
2: like, Jean Shakiri went to Stoke
1: yeah. because he knew that if he played well, he might go to Liverpool. Yeah, in the yeah, same exactly. way that sort of Andre Ayou went to Swansea for nothing in the way that he could then maybe go to West Ham and then yeah. go back to Swansea, which probably wasn't part of the plan.
2: Yeah, and, and Watford, of course, has always had a more uh, internationalist approach to their, to their recruitment as well. Yeah, you know, definitely, and put rugby unions uh, Nigel Pearson in charge. Well, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Pearson. You mentioned, you
1: mentioned Pearson. His his impact has been remarkable. Just wins over United, Wolves, Liverpool at the weekend, as well as taking points off United and uh, Sheffield United and Tottenham. What do you think, Migs? He's done to sort of turn them around, other than getting rid of
2: ketchup. He's wearing
3: yeah. glasses though, as well. Isn't yeah, he? that's
2: probably just, part of it. He, he does look like you know a, a coach in rugby union, something that he sat, sat in the stands at an earpiece. No, but he, but he's just. Um, I, I think he's applied. A proper kind of structure to that team which was missing because it, it's always been the weird thing with Watford and it, it's obviously worked for them all this changeability but it's not going to be 100% sustainable It'll always be dips and this is a situation where it just felt right for someone of his approach to come in and apply a bit of rigour and structure and uh, and resilience to them Well, it, it, it does come down to it as simple as that which isn't it? but I mean as well as actually Pearson is um, a lot more tactically astute than maybe certain perceptions of English managers like him uh, would would have people believe but no yeah but yeah um, I think that that's a lot of it I, I think they'll, they'll stay I think they'll end up staying, staying up quite comfortably
3: Yeah one of the biggest mistakes Watford made was rehiring Kike Sanchez Sanchez Flores because
2: I know they yeah. they did so because
3: they had a better squad than when he left and they mm-hmm. figured that you know merging them together would be ideal but they totally forgot about how lax he is kind of when he's not at the training ground I suppose and, and how little work he actually puts into tactics and like structure as well and mm-hmm. so it, it's almost like you know he set the bar even lower than before, and then you know the next man coming in is always going to have a better job. And the fact that he's done so with such I suppose, with such rigour and such um, such well, much more of a robust system is uh, yeah paying off.
4: Do you think the difference with Watford compared to some of their relegation rivals is that extended scouting network, the way they they utilise Udinese and. They have done with like I mean, Saar now is is becoming a real star in the league. You've you the likes of Pereira, who was much more of a star before he came, but they had the pull to go and get him. Um January they, they bought in from Udinese, so I think they've got a much broader network. So they hit on these players more often, say, than maybe Aston Villa, who went out and splashed way more money, but then they're failing more so to, to get value, aren't they?
3: Yeah, I, w- I wonder if it helps the mentality of, of the players in general, because I suppose if you're brought in as a big player and then the team you've been brought into is suffering, you might look around you and think, God, I'm just playing with clowns here. Mm-hmm. Whereas at Watford, there's, there were a lot of people at a very similar level who can do brilliant things per I yeah. Even Delafay uh, in there. Yeah, He mm-hmm. obviously had a quite bad start to the season. I think it was like 24 shots on goal without mm-hmm. a goal. And then... Yeah, got into a run and got a bit of confidence back. But yeah, I suppose you look around you and you're like, he used to play for Juventus. Yeah. You know, he he's come, came through at Barca. Yeah. You know, I, I suppose there's that kind of credibility there that maybe a lot of other teams lower down don't have and, might, and therefore might struggle to keep
4: their bigger players motivated.
1: They certainly feel like the form team of that sort of bottom six,
4: seven. Do you think they're going to have got enough to stay up? Yeah, un- undoubtedly. Uh, I think it's... You talk about that result of the weekend, it really was a bonus three points and I think just instils the belief that Miguel talks about the fixture list not necessarily mattering as much as it it should do in, in terms of your instinct, but really the, the, the result now gives them the strongest mentality possible that there is no fixture now for Watford where they, yeah. they will not be capable of getting three points. And I think... Opposition will know that going into it, and it will just make them more vulnerable and they're flying themselves. So I think that combination will, will see them home comfortably. Okay,
1: it's time for the shortest of breaks. We'll
4: see you in a bit.
0: Ready to pop the question?
1: Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Indie Football Podcast. Today we're talking the battle to beat the drop. We've hit on Aston Villa and Watford so far, but what of the team at the very bottom of the pile? Uh, Vish, what do we make of Norwich? Are they really the best ever bottom club?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: they're
3: the uh, they're the closest we've had to a, a YouTube bottom club. I think they have like moments that seem to go viral, and Todd Cantwell's you know great. I'm, I'm a big fan of the dance moves and occasionally his football but yeah there are, i i suppose there are this is probably one for one for miguel but because of the way that premier league teams are playing football we tend to see well i i think we tend to see less of the kind of park the bus style and we end up having teams coming through and wanting to play football because they need to hit teams on the break and they need to have players who can turn defence into attack as quickly as possible and therefore we get a team like Norwich where they're actually quite good to watch but they just don't really do anything you know when they win they win quite entertainingly was at the um, game against Arsenal at the end of last year I think it was Leuenberg's first game where they they should have won that they played brilliantly and they were quite well (laughs) if you were to you know put them all in, in the same colored shirts you'd have to really guess 50-50 shot in the dark as to which was the more established side because they were playing with that much confidence and especially at Carrow Road where they've developed quite a good atmosphere. But yeah, I mean, they're kind of, it's interesting, I don't think, I was speaking to someone at Norwich last week and they're pretty confident that Farker's going to be there Hmm. for next season as well. He's under no threat. They're in quite a comfortable position where they seem to have played good enough football to satisfy the fans, just not stay in the league. And they haven't really spent too much per se so they're going to basically have the same squad they're going to dip back into that championship pool of you know near Premier League teams and be in the relegation hu- oh, Sorry, in the promotion hunt next season in the championship Well they've been sensible as well I mean
2: obviously not in terms of style of football but they're a bit like Burnley in 2014-15 in which it feels like they've been promoted maybe ahead of schedule and it's created actually this kind of sensibility they, they, they haven't let that go to their heads it's created this kind of sensibility or, or really fostered or in further nurtured the sensibility to the club uh, because they've stayed prudent. If they go down, they're not going to panic. They're just going to keep on on the right approach, and uh, through that, they'll get the the, pr- the the real benefit of the Premier League, which is suddenly re- really being fortified, but money for the for the medium to long term.
3: Yeah, it was interesting um, that they seem to have you know obviously they they no no they didn't come into the league thinking well we'll just we'll just take the L and go back yeah. down, but they quickly seem to readjust their mentality with it um, and. Just accept the fact that right, probably not good enough for this league. So let's just do what we can. Let's tick over and yeah, and and take those parachute payments. And I think it was summed up in something that someone said to me when I asked about if Daniel Farker was close to even being talked about as getting sacked. And the response was, we well, just bought a house," <laughs> and it's that seems to sum it up. That everyone's mm. pretty comfortable where they're at right now, even if they are going to get relegated. Mm.
1: It's a weird one because it's basically the exact opposite of what Fulham did. So Fulham yeah. got promoted, quote sort of by accident, <laughs> and then spent a hundred million. Yeah. yeah, spent a hundred million on loads of players they shouldn't have signed. Yeah, sacked all the manager. Sacked the manager that got them up by accident, and then replaced him with someone who was never going to keep them up. And then went down again. And now they have had to sell all the players they bought yeah. for a hundred million, and now cripple with lots of Premier League contracts. It's sort of it's a it's a weird one. Like it's something you mentioned early today, Migs, do you think there's a sort of an area where there's now teams who don't
2: really want to go up? I mean, and there is a bit of that. And we've, I mean, I suppose it's something maybe touched upon in a piece did a few weeks ago about disparity in football, where it, I suppose it depends on perspective. I mean, Norwich have actually, despite where they are on the table, they've, I think that their fans have evidently enjoyed their stay in the Premier League. Yeah. Whereas most, for a lot of clubs, i have I've, talking to some Fulham fans, if feel like this, they enjoy their time in the championship more because they come up and they kind of they get the Premier League and they just subjected to this misery and everything's so intense and like oh the pressure to stay in there and what it means and the money rather than just kind of being about the football. And, the, uh, the th- and I think the, the other side of that is the, is the fear, right? The fear yeah. of going to Anfield. I mean, the fir- I mean,
1: the fixture guys really didn't do any favors, did they? Like, yeah, go to Anfield on a Friday night mm. for your first game, lads, at Norwich. It's yeah, like well, yeah. you were, even they played quite well in that game, but you were always going to lose four 0 yeah, You'd yeah. have taken four nil at the start. And it's sort of, I understand that sort of as a fan of a second tier team where you'd rather go up when you're ready to go up. So if you look at it sort of now, mm. West Brom and Leeds maybe now, they feel sort of ready yeah, yeah. to take that next step. Whereas if they go up, then maybe they could stay up. I guess the the opposite case is Sheffield United, who definitely weren't ready to go up mm. and then went up and now they're fifth.
3: Yeah, I, I think what what you often get in the championship is the the teams that don't want to come up, are the, are, I suppose the, the fans that don't want to come up are from clubs Who've yo-yoed a bit, and have the novelty of going to Anfield, of going to you know the Etihad, of going to the Emirates, going to Old Trafford, that's worn off pretty quickly because they just remember all the bad times yeah. going away. Whereas, so you know, someone like you know, they're a bit off it now, but teams like Brentford and and Notts Forest, Nottingham Forest, sorry, if, if they uh, they get promoted, they're going to love it because it's been ages. Even Le- Leeds United, well, they're a great example of a team who've just been away for a, a bit too long, and will happily take it back up. Um, yeah, you know, it happened with Newcastle as well when they got relegated. Um, my brother's a Newcastle fan and he said it was incredible fun going and just pasting teams every week. And he just, he's just, he's never had a Newcastle team like yeah, that yeah. you know, in his lifetime. Um, I also wonder with, you know, you mentioned Fulham there and they're a great example of a club, as you said, who've bought all these players and it just hasn't worked out because we're going to get to a stage, I think, where we're going to have a lot of asset sharing with teams that are getting relegated and teams that are getting promoted. So, for example, if Brighton get relegated, someone's going to go after Mope, for example, mm. And conversely, anyone else who's so, oh, someone might go for Huruhan get relegated. Yeah. and then you will also be in a situation where, for example, if Mitro stays at Fulham next year, somehow and they don't, if they don't get promoted and he's still there, someone's going to loan him to the Premier League. So you're going to have this weird situation where it's almost yeah. like Serie A in the '90s. You remember when like Helveg yeah, 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 played yeah, yeah. for like Inter, yeah. and AC, and Seedorf as well. Like, I think we're going to be in a weird situation where suddenly like <laughs> two, well a club in the championship will actually only have 10 fully contracted players and the club at the bottom of the Premier League will actually only have 10 and end up loaning eight, seven or eight, yeah. I think
4: that's what's really impressive about Norwich is that the way they've structured their squad, they now have a group of players with more experience, better experiences, like where they've had fun, they're learning their games. You look at that back four, like Godfrey, Lewis, Aaron's really good, young, talented players who can only benefit from the experience of a sustained run at that level, learning against the top, top players, seeing how Chelsea have done it. I mean, in that sense, Farkas replicated Lampard in the sense where he's he's given faith to these young players who probably aren't ready to keep them up. I mean, they've done well to remain in contention, but now they're going to really reap rewards, aren't they, next season if they do go down. Those those players will be some of the best players in the championship and they'll give them a really good platform to build from and if they manage to get promoted straight away suddenly you've got a collection of outstanding young players worth in excess of 25 30 million or even more
1: they seem like the sort of the rarity actually if you look at the running um in that they've actually got some of the teams around them to play so Southampton Brighton and West Ham they've obviously still got to play Arsenal Chelsea and they've got City on the final day which seems suboptimal but do we think they're done, or do you think they could maybe stage as Miggs was whistling before a great escape? No,
3: no they're pretty far off. Yeah, yeah. They, I, think, I think they'd have to go against what they've been doing all season, and yeah, I don't see it.
1: Right, so the team occupying the, occupying the final spot in the bottom three Bournemouth. The Cherries looked toast a few weeks ago, but wins over Brighton and Aston Villa have given them life again. Jack, you watched them against Chelsea on Saturday, another positive result, if not exactly what they wanted. What did you make of them?
0: yeah i
4: thought they were they were good like promising the way they they dug in um whether the the early setback and came back very strongly took their chances i mean i'd say it's probably easier to be ruthless against a side like chelsea because they do give you a glimmer don't they when even when they're ahead you know your your chance will come but i just think it's yeah it's interesting the way they they drop someone in josh king and then can move it out to out to the wings, and then they were committing men forward. I think it was really impressive how they crowded the box, and in that sense, I think they they're going to stand a lot a big chance in these games coming up, um, even against uh, Liverpool coming up. I think the way they are being bold in possession, it does lend to Eddie Howe's side. Sort of, it's a bit cyclical, isn't it, in the way that they they go on these long runs of. Um, good form then it's a long run of bad form and I think in that sense you keep the faith with the way they, they're playing and and sooner or later it will turn around.
2: They're, they're actually a bit like
4: Fulham in the 2000s where I think it was almost
2: every season we thought right, this is, they're going to finally go down now and just because of the stability and culture of the club they just always have enough then kind of almost muscle memory to go back up and because maybe there was dry principles there as well. They're quite boring the Bournemouth. In that sense, yeah,
3: they used to be like, quite entertaining to watch, yeah. They've yeah, just yeah. lost that.
2: Everything they? about even the football is a bit samey. The just house has <laughs> nothing. Um, I mean, if the Premier League lost from this point, it wouldn't mean too much, would it? No, no. There was definitely a stage
3: when they were having those like ding dongs with Liverpool yeah. where you thought, God, this is, this is quite a fun side here, and they've yeah, seems to have lost yeah. that
2: joy. I suppose, I mean, the flip side of having that kind of stability and, and, and principles is that a certain staleness can creep in, maybe, and even staleness from people watching on, obviously not their own fans. But a bigger question than that is, if they were to go down, what if Bournemouth actually got out of the Premier League? They haven't, like... They've just, has, it, has, play, has it basically all the money just <laughs> gone into player wages? Yeah. Because the stadium is pretty much the same. They haven't got a new training ground, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong there. Um... They're quite um, they're quite an
3: underrated rich club, aren't they? No yeah. one really talks about actually how much money they have. And I think it's definitely, certainly when they got promoted, it definitely annoyed fans of other championship clubs that were lauding little old Bournemouth and mm. you know, they've got enough in the bank, yeah. Eddie is quite an interesting one, isn't he? It? Because it's probably a bit lazy, but I see so many similarities between kind of the end of Kerbyshley's yeah. time at Charlton and wondering if actually the fear of, of pushing him away and letting him go is tempered by the fact that what if they just tank completely? And there seems to uh, it's almost they worked perfectly together, you know, especially when he came back from Burnley. They seemed to be perfectly yeah, yeah. all the way through. And now they both seem quite bad for each other. Yeah. But no one more, it's like you it's basically like watching, you know, but one of your mates in a really toxic relationship. It's, it's only it's only it's can't two, bring themselves for the break. It's
2: only a year and a half ago, two years ago, that um, people are, who know how really felt that if when Poch was to leave Spurs he'd have a realistic shot. He'd be top three and in terms of kind of succeeding him. And that's just gone now. That pe- complete, appears totally fanciful. I mean, yeah, that's true. It's still
1: a weird one, though. It's sort of, if you look at like the odds whenever any manager goes or any manager's on the brink at any one of the sort of top six, eight clubs, Hal's name will be like top three or yeah. four every single time. So he's sort of linked with everyone else's job, yet it appear he's not Actually, that good at his own. Right now, at least,
2: he does have certain figures. And he's got It's time for him to true. have that, yeah. that that big job. Um, do you think
3: if he if he, do you think if he wasn't English, he'd he'd still be in the job this season?
2: Uh, if he wasn't so associated with Bournemouth, okay, I think they would have they would have pulled the trigger. But I suppose he's earned that as well.
3: Yeah, it's true. So. What, what, like, just to get a bit nerdy, like, what is it about what is about how's ethos? You know, his what, his philosophy that is to be lauded? Because obviously this season we haven't really seen Well,
2: I see... There might be an argument with how in that sense that actually he has been taken over by the evolution in the, in the game itself. I mean, because when Wormick got promoted and when he first started to remake his name across the country in that way, there was still that kind of schism between... And this is, we're, we're kind of touching on a piece in this next week where the kind of... the. the 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 binary in football tactics was Mourinho v Guardiola, kind of defensive reactive football be possession football, and um, uh, how how is football? It was very obviously very possession based. Whereas now in the last five years, that's completely escalated and evolved. So defensive football like that or the Mourinho football isn't really that relevant, and almost and p- possession football in and of itself isn't enough anymore. That's actually quite passive, and it could be even argued that's a bit slow in itself because pressing and the speed of transitions has now become so. Crucial of football, and that that is now the kind of you you could call it the proactive purest approach. But but that's and it's it, it almost feels like the Bournemouth teams are just a little bit they don't they're a bit tepid in that way.
1: It's something we sort of touched on with Norwich, right? It's like, mm. do we think it's possible to stay up playing good football? So there, it seems like Bournemouth are going to go down playing the same way that they've played all along. It doesn't seem like they can sort of revert back to basics mm. in a way that's perhaps not on Saturday, but the way that sort of Watford have in that so would just go and tighten everything up and but, but play not to lose a little bit. Does it seem like Bournemouth are either capable of that?
2: But isn't that an interesting question as regards relegation itself? Because I think we're still almost influenced by like 30 years of this, where Sam Allardyce being the, the survival specialist because he would be so pragmatic about kind of, right, this is where we win our points, this is how we try to win our points. And it, it was just so kind of bloody-minded about it. Whereas, is that really the best practice anymore? Um, I think there was there was I think a trend started about two years ago, especially when like that cycle of managers like Pulis and Alire started to not get as many jobs. Where if you weren't playing a more attractive mode of football, then a you you weren't attractive to your your supporters or, or you know the, in, the, in the wider business interests Premier League, and b it mightn't have been as effective anymore. I mean, because uh, one thing about Norwich is. Would they actually be better off if they played a more reductive style? I, don't, I think this is the, the I think they've overachieved through I, this.
1: I guess the opposite side of that would be someone like, say, Stoke, where hmm. if they'd decided to not try and play a bit more expansive with Hughes instead of Pulis, say, and they decided to... Uh, would they have stayed in the Premier League playing a more reductive style? I
2: don't know. Would uh, they rather
1: be in the Prem playing bad football or be at the bottom end of the Championship playing better football?
3: But do you not also think there that when you're trying to implement a style of play, it, it, it doesn't work in pre-season, it takes a couple of seasons. Mm-hmm. And if it just so happens that in that cycle, you get into the Premier League, do you then abandon that mm. to stay in the Premier League? I suppose that the, it was interesting when Eddie when Boothrow took Watford up all those years ago um, and they got relegated, I uh, remember the, I think it was, I think he was asked, yeah, what, what, what went wrong? And he, he just said, we were two years too early. Mm. Like, we had this in place and then suddenly we got promoted. We were like, OK, right, do we do we stick or do we do we stick with what we're planning? Or do we just ignore the fact that we need to play differently because we're going to be hammering every week if we do so? And they sacked him midway through that season and kind of fell away. And it took them a while to build that back up. So, you know, it feels weird. Obviously, the way the Premier League is skewed is it is... Ultimately, to be all and end, all in terms of how we write about it and how it's talked of, and certainly how it's talked of in boardrooms up and down the country. But you know, is Farker doing the right thing? Is Eddie Howe having done the right thing now doing the wrong thing? It's um, yeah, maybe it's, it's interesting.
4: I don't think there's a right answer. But I think uh, Eddie Howe has sort of opened him up to opened himself up to criticism. I think in the way that he's spent his money. I think there's an argument that while Bournemouth are one-paced, had they nailed their transfers, a in a better manner, then maybe they, they would have more more options, a better more versatility. I think you look at the midfield billing, Lerma's fine. Um Solanke hasn't worked at all. I think Wilson is a bit of a wild card, but he's not like he's not gonna be their player for for the long term. I think just there's definitely a question mark on the way that Howe identifies players because one crucial move at the start of the summer which he sent, he, they agreed to sell Mings to to Villa permanently. I mean, Ake's great, but I mean, they could do with both. I think. I think the way that he has over the years been a bit bit sketchy, I think in the transfer window, I think that's that's definitely um, a cross against his name, despite being a promising manager.
3: Do you think it's a cross against his name for a bigger team as well? Because yeah. that's what it
4: sounds like. The time,
3: the times he has actually
4: been given the money to spend, he's
3: uh, duds like. In, in theory, for a bigger
4: club, it it actually shouldn't be a, a cross that matters too much because if they target the manager and know that he would have to agree to a structure where director of football is providing his players, then that would almost take away the, the weakness to how that might expose him at a Bournemouth where he either wants or craves that, that power, that, that overriding decision-making, which he wouldn't get maybe at... Well, he wouldn't get it at Spurs but then he would be able to offer his other good qualities. So it is a strange one. I don't quite know what's deterred some bigger clubs to, to go and get him. I mean, he's obviously very comfortable there. He does have, like I just said, so much power it is his club. He, the way he's built them throughout two spells, I think he's very comfortable there. So, yeah, I just think it's that is one of the weaknesses there at Bournemouth. that maybe hinders them from doing what Sheffield United have done in terms of like pushing beyond what... Maybe should be their their ceiling in theory.
1: Yeah. I mean, speaking of spending money badly, we spent a lot of time talking about West Ham uh, last week. They're now 16th after a big, big win over Southampton. What are the other sort of possibles down there? Migs, who else else do you think is sort of definitely safe? Where would it sort of, where would the line be? Uh,
2: I've been slightly concerned for Brighton lately. I think Newcastle will be fine. Palace look like they're going to be in free fall recently, uh, but have kind of rallied together. This, This is the thing. It's. One win suddenly changes, completely changes your complexion. And I suppose it's about then being able to build on that in this kind of weirdly erratic season. Um, so, yeah, if, if Villa win their game in hand, they yeah. end up
3: bringing, what, four teams into it, don't they? So yeah. at
2: the moment, I think the cutoff is just looking at. If, I think there's only six teams in it right now. So that is because there's a four point gap between Newcastle and Brighton. But then again, there was a four point gap between Brighton and 18 only a few weeks ago and that's been that's been cut away
1: well, well yeah you mentioned brighton they sort of they feel like they're in this sort of state of playing good stuff without mm. being effective at all whereas newcastle yeah. are playing not very good stuff but are sort of sneaky quite yeah. effective and, but brighton but brighton haven't won a game in 2020 one of yeah. the only team in of the 92 to do that
2: they have got some good draws but I suppose draws don't keep you yeah. up <laughs> um,
1: in quite a quite weird one cuz potter you would say sort of if you take a step back potter's done quite a good job Vish, you'd say
3: yeah, definitely. I wrote, I wrote a fawning piece about him when they beat Arsenal. Again, Arsenal are just the, so erratic that they've thrown everyone's opinions out of sync. Um, it's interesting that they sit 10th they just completely forgot that. It's been such a dire season for them. But yeah, they, they were brilliant against Arsenal at the Emirates. Um, and they they seem to have such a well-drilled team. And Mope and Connolly playing together, they, they're probably my... They were my favourite double X the first half of the season because both had no goal and both kind of hated each other. So it almost kind of spurred them on. And I wondered if that kind of, you know, I suppose, inter squad competitiveness coupled with what Potter was trying to do in terms of the football he was trying to play would be conducive to them being quite comfortable, basically doing what Bournemouth used to do, basically. Um, and yeah, it's interesting to big sales that they've had like, you know, they've had good draws. I think on the weekend they set the record for the most shots on goal for a team that didn't win. Which is, you know, I mean that's a real quiz really, isn't it? But yeah, I I do I do worry about them because they definitely seem the kind of club where no one really thinks they're in it until three games ago and you're like, Oh, hold on. Actually they've if they don't win all these, you know, the next the final three, then they're in a lot of trouble. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I feel like we're talking about the cut off point. I think, you know, Newcastle and to are safe. Southampton would have obviously liked to beat West Ham to just chill that up. Yeah. And I think, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but West Ham have so much individual quality now that I just can't really see them, you know, getting dragged down too far into it.
1: You mentioned Newcastle. What do you think of them, Jacks, at the moment? Sort of Bruce's. Doing what Steve Bruce is always going to do, wasn't he? Sort of always going to go in there and just solidify everything. And he tried to be a bit more expansive, get away from what Rafa did, which is a bit more nuts and bolts. And he's slipped back into it. He's relying on a forty million pound number nine who can't score. Well, yeah. how would you sort of assess the job Bruce has done? And you, I would say, I think we're all in agreement they've probably done enough, right?
4: Yeah, they've they've done enough, and I think Bruce deserves tremendous credit because let's not be revisionist here. When he was Put in charge and Benitez walked away. Everyone mocked him. Everyone mocked the decision. Mike Ashley's clearly a bit of a villain and nobody's favourite guy in football. But they haven't missed a step really by ditching Benitez. I mean, in my opinion, if they stay up, that is exactly what Mike Ashley wants from Newcastle, and that's exactly what he's going to get. So I think, in that sense, Bruce has is, is, is done really well. And but you do mention that the. the <laughs> Joholington is is not really what they expected, but in essence, that's more credit to Bruce. He's he's done so despite that that waste of money. I think the way he's got got something out of um, say Maximan, I think that's that's really promising. That's all. Maybe Newcastle fans want they want players to excite them. They want to maybe want to try and win, win games on the on the front foot a little bit more, but. Bruce has said all along they've got to they've got to walk before they can run and I think give him a bit more time and I think another window maybe he will start to sort of um, mix and match the, the way he approaches games. Southampton the
1: thirteenth they they're probably out of it. No, but it was a are, yeah. it was a dreadful result at West Ham. They've probably done enough. What would you, it's something you've mentioned before, Migs, about um, the sort of the courage of Southampton to stick to their guns after the nine nil? We, no, although,
2: <laughs> from what everything some things we've heard since is that that wasn't so much courage as that there was the club was in the state of dysfunction at the top of the time, so no one was actually no there was no one really to make the decision that strong. But it's worked out to their benefit. And I do I think, you know, Hassan has we've said in this pod before, but he's a better manager than a lot of those at the holes actually at the top end of the Premier League. Um and yeah, he it, it's 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 worked out very well for them. And like their their run since that nine 0 defeat has been incredible. Um where do we think so we so we've sort of gone through all the contenders.
1: Then, so what's the what's the the big question? Who do you think is going to go down, Jack?
4: Yeah, I think I think Brighton will just about have enough. I think what Miguel mentioned is important. While draws don't seem that sexy now, I think not losing games it will add up over these next ten games. I think you you only have to look at last season. Brighton stayed up along with Southampton and Burnley as the the three teams above the drop zone none of them won a game in their last four games so yeah, I think it's a bit of a, a myth of a fallacy that you have to win your games and you're running you, I mean we, we're looking at the fixtures and saying that has to be a win, that home win. If you just don't lose games I think you can, you can just sort of squeak over the line so I, I'd say Brighton to just sort of survive just about. I think Norwich and Villa will go and then I think probably Bournemouth will go as well because I think West Ham might just have a a couple of match winners in there um, to just sort of pull them out, despite the mess they've created for themselves. What do you think, sh-
1: West Ham, going to do enough?
3: Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think we. I don't even actually think they played that well on the weekend. They just had you know three moments, well four if you include the Rabona from Haller that uh, were just uh, yeah just too good for for Southampton. Um, I, I think the three to go down of the, the three as they are now in um, yeah Norwich, Bournemouth, and. Villa, sadly, uh, I, I, I've really enjoyed watching Villa this year. I know that's not a reason for them to stay up, despite my letters to the Premier League. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, those three as they are now,
2: yeah. Migs, same for you. Uh, no, I think Norwich, yeah. There's going to be no great escape. Um, I think West Ham will, yeah, despite the rule of the weekend. Uh, Funny is
3: the wrong word, but there's something about if they go down, that would be that's staggering. It really, would. It, it would
2: be. In a very Greek tragedy, tragedy sense, kind of like I mean, just kind of hubristic uh, reward. Because the way the owners have talked about what was going to happen to the club when they moved and all this and what's done to the club. Uh, and I mean, there's this ongoing argument over whether pound for pound, they are the worst run club in the Premier League. Um,
3: Even it was like very West mm. Ham for them to win so convincingly after a fan protest. Mm. Like, yeah, Just oh, ast- yeah, yeah, astonishing yeah. state of a club. Yeah, yeah there's, there's,
2: a, there's huge schisms there. Um, and uh, I, I, I also don't really, I don't really rate Moyes anymore. I have to say. Um. So yeah, I'm going uh, Norwich, West Ham, Bournemouth. <laughs> Migs on the Villa bus.
1: I love it. <laughs> That's pretty much all we have time for this week. But before we go, Jack, do you have a hero?
4: Yeah, my hero will be Billy Gilmore, eighteen-year-old Scottish midfielder for Chelsea, um, putting in a man of a match display against. Um, the champions elect I think it doesn't get much better for a young player to come in and experience the euphoria of that I mean I say it doesn't get much better I mean maybe Phil Foden has an argument but I think Billy Gilmore for me Vish a villain
3: uh, villain is Mikhail Antonio because if someone plays an over the top three ball by a Rabona it is your duty to finish it so that we can watch it again and again and again and I think he should be yeah I was going to say something really outlandish there but no it's just he should be disappointed in himself
1: absolutely right Right, that's just about it. Um, If you're a new listener, please subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.